Okay, we've covered three essential issues so far. First of all, we spoke a little bit about the philosophy of the holiday of Passover, describing it, what we call it, as an orientating event, an event through which you see all other issues in life, an event which is going to determine our values and how we relate to a Kadosh Baruch, how we relate to the Almighty through the experience of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. We will have in life many experiences that will be contrary to the values that are taught in Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, such as, a, God forbid, a Holocaust or, or destruction of the temples, and yet we choose to see these events through the perspective of the orientating event, which is Yom Yitzrayim, which teaches the values that God is concerned, He's involved, He will manifest Himself through the natural order, beyond the natural order, change the natural order. God is a God who redeems. Even when feeling the most pain through a particular event that takes place, either personally or collectively or nationally, still in all, our orientating event is the event which teaches us what God is all about, what we're all about, and how we interact with Hashem Himself. That was the first point that we made about the holiday of Passover. Because it's such an incredibly important orientating event, therefore, the halachot that emerge from the practice of holiday are overwhelming. One can argue very easily and very well that there is no other holiday that is as intense in its halachic observance as this. And of course, we all understand and appreciate that by all that we go through, to the extent that our food changes radically, to the extent that we have to overturn our entire house, even our, even the utensils that we use have to all be changed or what we call purged. Now, that's the first point. Second point, we spoke about the notion of lists. Remember, there are certain lists in the community, and we have to make a decision as to what lists we're going to use. Realizing a the psychological facts that we spoke about. Realizing, B, the guests who are going to come to your house. You know who's going to come to your house. You have an obligation of telling him, well, I'm following list A, B, or C. Whatever list you're going to be following, make sure it's appropriate to you. If you're Ashkenazic, the list may not be appropriate for you. If it is, it is fine. But you have the obligation of making sure that you're following the right list, the JSOR list, or Rabbi Fakhri's list, or Rabbi Bud, Rabbi Barry's list, or Rabbi Harari's list. Any which one of these issues, one has to make sure. I will tell you that all these lists are very carefully researched. They're all done with the utmost of integrity and understanding of the halachot, you can safely rely, if you follow the instructions on the list, but you must follow the instructions, which means that if it's for Sfaradim, it's for Sfaradim, it's for Sfaradim, it's for Sfaradim, which means that if it says to you, only use the list from this year, don't go back to lashes, because he checked it out. It may not have been a, a appropriate lashes this year, it is, and vice versa. Something that was appropriate last year may not be appropriate this year. So he checks out all these items in an appropriate fashion, so you want to make sure that you have the appropriate list, and follow the instructions. Critically important. It's one of the important skills you learn in school. Follow the instructions. Whatever he says there. And he has a hotline. And if you have a question, he has the answer to those questions. People have called him. I don't have all the answers. Whatever it was, you want to follow the right list. That was point number two. Point number three, we spoke a little bit about the mitzvot of the holiday. We opened up the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus. You'd bet. Chapter 12. And there we found... Number one issue was interesting is that the Torah begins a section with a signification of time. And you could think about, we discussed it only briefly, but we could think about what's the relationship between time and the Jewish people. Why is the first mitzvah that God gives, Moshe and Aharon, in Egypt about time, signification of the new moon? We saw that verse 1 and verse 2. We could elaborate even further and raise the question, why does God say this mitzvah to Moshe and Aharon? Here's two distinct people, rather than usually it's God says to Moses, Moses tells the people. 
Here, Aaron is now playing a prominent role. Why is that? Interesting question. Also, why is this mitzvah the first, and why is this mitzvah in Egypt itself? But it's Mitzrayim Lemur, we had seen. One can raise those questions, and presumably the answer to those questions will help us understand the factor of time in terms of Jewish people, as well as in terms of the holiday. Take note again, how often time plays a role in the holiday of Pesach. We had seen that the word hipazon, quickly, played a role in the holiday of Pesach. The food we eat, remember that matzah and hametz are really essentially the very same foodstuff. What is it? Flour and water. What's the difference between matzah and hametz? Simply, time. 18 minutes. Prior to 18 minutes, you have matzah. After 18 minutes, you have hametz. So time plays a very critical role. Even the way the Jews celebrated the very first Passover, Korban Pesach, they had to eat their matzah with their belts tied, staff in hand, shoes on, ready to go. Because what was of the essence? Time. So one wants to think about what the role time plays in the Jewish calendar. Why time is so important. On Shabbat, we're going to discuss a number, and the holidays, a number of other aspects where halakhically time plays a role in the Jewish consciousness. There are essentially two distinct areas that one wants to be aware of when one is Jewish. One is sacredness of place and of time. We'll discuss those two issues on our Shabbat classes. That's the way this parasha begins. Parasha is so significant that Rashina's commentary based on the rabbinic writing says, you know what, we should start the Torah with this first mitzvah. Rashin, the very first Rashin, Rashid Aleph Aleph, which remember from third and fourth grades, that we should start the Torah with this mitzvah. This is so important. This is the whole issue. The whole issue, the whole essence of all Judaism. This mitzvah, let's start with this. What about all the Bereshit? We don't need it. First 12 chapters of Shemot, we don't need it. This is the way you start Judaism. Interesting issue. And Ramban Ahmadis, the another great, brilliant commentary on the Bible. We do need the other, but really we could have included and incorporated in another mitzvah. But he essentially agrees with Rashi, but he describes at length why he includes the whole book of Bereshi. But this opening line is critically important, as is the holiday of Pesach. We had seen in these verses, remember, the mitzvah said two positive commandments. One, we had seen, eat matzah on that night. Good, we do. Number two is, tashpiru surbatechem, get rid of your hamet. Good. We spoke about bitul, which means that once the hametz is physically destroyed, we then say a certain little prayer, in the language that we understand, saying that any hametz that comes to my position is going to be viewed by me as afrad yara'ah, by dirt of the land. All hametz is incredibly turned because of your psychological power of suggestion. All that hametz is going to be right away, what? Afrad yara'ah. Good. That's the mitzvah of tashbitu, second mitzvah of aseh. Then we had seen that there actually are four other mitzvot, lota aseh, that's what I was concerned about. One is Asur Achila. You cannot eat any Hametz. Very stringent. The punishment, Hayab Karet, cut off from the Jewish people. That's of course if you're aware, you know about it. I'm not talking about people that never learned, never studied, didn't know about it. But anybody else that knows about this mitzvah, it says, I am eating Hametz. Equivalent to eating on Yom Kippur. It means you are defining yourself at that point out of the Jewish people. I don't share the values of the Jewish people. I'm not essentially Jewish if I decide to do all this. Of course, you did it once, twice, three times, as all of us may have done at one point or other in our lives. We do Teshuvah and that atones for that particular transgression. Okay, atonement, no problem, for sure. But if I don't atone, then Hayab Karet means the most intense form of Jewish punishment that you're cut off from the Jewish people. As an extension of this also, a rabbinic extension of this, there's a prohibition of getting any benefit from any Hametz. Any benefit. Which means, I could say that I'm going, not going to eat it, but I'm going to sell it in my store. Can't do it. You have to then get rid of that Hametz as well. Now, as an extension to this, 2,000 years ago, the rabbis were aware of commercial problems with the 
notion of getting rid of your hamet, what are you going to do over here? Close down my business? I can't do that. So the rabbis initiated at that point the notion of selling your hamet, which you're all aware of, and you have in front of you a power of attorney, which gives me the right to sell the hamet. We're going to sell the hamet in another few days, right? Wednesday morning, we meet, non-Jew, we give him all the lists, all these addresses, and you, you may wake up one morning to a nice, good, bona fide non-Jew who say, hand it over. He'll get a lot of these suggestions, right? He may really like that one, but there's a footnote over here. Okay, there's very clear halachic issues involved over here, and the rabbis determined that one who, Ashkenaziyah, who marries a Faradi, is allowed to eat rice. That's the one point. Number two point, if I'm correct, I just read Hamavadiyah, it there makes the point that if an Ashkenaziyah marries a, um, the opposite happens. If a Spartic woman married an Ashkenazi guy, then she should not serve him rice, eat rice in their home, but she did, right, she go to her parental home. People go to, people go to great lengths to have rice, right. Is Ashkenazi? No. No. The only, wait, the only, wait, before the only time, the only, it's halakhan with the Rabbanan. Rabbanan. The rabbis of that Ashkenazi community decreed it to be so. The rabbis. <laughs> Want to change your spots, huh? No, no, wait, wait. If there are dietary issues and you go to a rabbi, you know, whoever your rabbi is, and you talk about the dietary issues, certainly children often have that as an issue, and you have to just work out with that rabbi, you know, what are the parameters of what you need. If the doctor just says, medical necessities call it, of course you can. That would be another issue. So that's for sure what I talk about, you know, to the rabbi in question. Um, I told you the case of the Ashkenazic woman. She was actually, she said she's Spartan. She was married to a conservative rabbi in an Alapin or some place, Marble, I think. And she wants to eat rice in her house because she doesn't eat vegetarians, doesn't like potatoes and all that, whatever Ashkenazi eats. So that's an interesting halakha question. She's married to a conservative Ashkenazi rabbi. And he says no. You know, she, but she says, I have to. So they come to me. I pass the buck. <laughs> I'm not going to decide that marital issue. That's a different issue between a husband and a wife. She should go to her for scheme. Not, I'm not her for sick. That's one way of doing it. So that's a technical question I want us to deal with. There are dietary issues and whatever it is, you're right. It's, we have to also, you're right to ask, it's not a biblical law not to eat rice. It's a long-standing, let's say, thousand-year-old Ashkenazic custom based on certain communities. Uh, there are some and people, Emily's family, Hasidic family, they don't eat tomatoes because they sprinkle them with flour or something. Seeds might be a reason. Hummus, some people don't eat hummus because it sounds like hamet. I don't follow any of those. Some people don't eat corn. Some people don't eat corn. They don't eat, they don't eat um, dried fruits and vegetables. I don't want any of those. Why not? Because it's not our reality. Doesn't my family community never accepted it? Although some people in our community, some Egyptians did, Iraqis, Moroccans did. They all accepted different things along the way. Because it's an emergency. Okay, that's an emergency issue, and the rabbis have a right to overturn an earlier rabbinic ruling based on emergency measures. But an, an average Ashkenazic person who has no other reason to eat rice should not be eating rice. That's their custom. In some cases, I found an interesting issue, in some cases where um, Ashkenazim, who had absolutely no tradition, assimilated, gone beyond the pale, married Syrian women, and really took on all of the customs of the women and they asked their rabbis because they felt that I'm really living in a Sephardic community, in a Syrian community, my wife's this, and I, they've overwhelmed me because they really had strong traditions, the Syrian women. They grew up in a religious home and they said, the man wants to be religious, 
So everything he did at that point on, on was a change, you know, so in that case a change. Interesting, I don't know what they asked, but it's an interesting uh, way of approaching this, because it would be impossible for him who has no tradition to do, he has none, he's zero. So in that case, it's a different story. So one has to ask a rabbi, try to figure out all the details of that, like halakha. Okay, so let's go on. So we spoke about the Isud of Achilal, eating, getting any benefit. We spoke about the Isud of Ta'arovet Hamet, a mixture of Hamet, also we're very, very, very concerned and careful with even a mixture of Hamet, a little tiny grain of wheat in a whole pot would not be batil, not be nullified completely. And then we spoke about the prohibition of owning Hamet, therefore we sell it, can't hold it, can't even have it. Of course, a non-Jewish Hamet in your house you can have. Clear? The non-Jew owns Hamet in your house is fine. You would put it away, you don't want to see it, but you put it away, lock it away, whatever you do, so you won't see it, use it by accident. Look at the issue of, my mind, what do you want to sell? Different traditions. Some people say, don't sell anything, just get rid of all your hamet. That's what I really want. I support that. Some say, no, no, I can't do all of it, I have two cartons of uh, Syrian bread. Now I have a question, should you sell your mamash hamet, your real hamet, or only tarobit hamet, or only those innocent items, like ketchup or something else like that? Different people, families, different issues. If you're selling your hamet, I maintain the sale is good, we sell it all, and therefore whatever you have in your house is not in your possession, it's not a problem. Whether it's actual hamet or tarobit hamet or mixture of hamet, you've sold your hamet. So it's not in your possession whatsoever. But of course, I would want you to have access to it. And if you ate from it, guess what? You stole. It's not yours to eat. And if you ate, let's say, by accident something that was non-Jewish, you're paying for it. You know, because it wasn't yours. Sorry? No, no. We buy it back from, we buy it back from, whatever, yeah, we buy it back from the non-Jew. We tell him, we, we don't act, are you interested in this thing? Is this what the numbers are whatever? No, no, I'd rather not. I'd rather sell it back to you. He sells it back to you. And then it's your hamid. Next Wednesday. Wednesday morning. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, all of that. <laughs> right. Now, also, we spoke about the rabbinic issue of medikat hamid, searching your homes for hamid. We do it, of course, on Tuesday night. Medikat hamid. We say the beracha al biur hametz because we're only searching in order to burn it. Biur means to burn. So we say the beracha on checking, but for the ultimate burning. One second, one second, burning. We try to do it not as late as possible. No, we try to do it early in the evening, about 20 minutes at the sunset, which is about 6:30, because okay, when he gets home. So then you do it. Sure. How good are your eyes? <laughs> Nobody else around. You don't have to hide them, by the way. It's really a search. If you do your four-year-old, and you may not find them. These kids find the real weird places. Now, if you, if you have to hide them, yeah. you don't have to hide necessarily. It's a Kabbalistic tradition. You don't have to do that. But you basically want to search. You don't have to hide them. You don't want to. You just have to search the Hamid. You want to search wherever he would, four-year-old, putting away, put it the Hamid. Sakura. You always find the Sakura. No, the Sakura. <laughs> We do that, yes. Now remember, let's say you put out ten. We we do that. The kids like we do. We put out ten. What happens if you only find nine? So the answer is be tool. At the end of the day, I did be tool. I nullified the whole entire so It's not there any longer. It's dust. So it's not right. Okay, now between what's it, right between the beracha and the beginning of the search, you can't say anything, right? Right, but once you've started, you once you start once you started the search, you can talk, talk about all things that have to do with the with the bedikah. Right. Now, if you haven't somebody called you say hello, it's not a terrible thing. You don't say another bedikah for that. Yes, you learn that without a bedikah. Right, and then wherever you're going to be, where are you going to be? 
Tuesday night. But when you get to where you're going to be, then do the Bidikah. With a Beracha. Wherever you get there, whatever you get there, do the Yeah, wherever you're going to be. There's a Mitzvah of doing the Bidikah that night with a Beracha. And then the next day, you, the Beracha is for burning, and the next day you want to burn something. Even if it's a little bit, you want to burn something. You want some physical. You do, no. Well, no, but even. Oh, but you, but, yeah, but theoretically, if the non-Jewish person comes and wants your Hamas, that, that he bought, everything's really easy for you, so let me tell you, four o'clock, morning, your kids will get you back to this. My kids always good. So you check, you know, check and just, but you want to know where all your Hamas is. You have to clear it to make it know where it is, and you happen to have a candy bar in the sock drawer, remember that? That happens to but it's by tail, anyway. So whatever you're going to have in mind, sell, sell, the clothes, items, etc., etc., and everything else um, will be nullified. Whatever you start is nullified. So you, have, you should have no hamas in your possession. You have to necessarily clean the whole house. You just know, do the bedikah with the and then burn on Wednesday morning, wherever you are, you want to burn. Is that opinion brought down in Shulchan Aruch? That's correct. People were very unhappy with the There is that, that opinion is brought down. No, absolutely. No, there, is, there, should, there, should be, there should be some, even a superficial cleaning of it. You should know where your hamas is. There is that opinion brought down in case of the you come back. Yeah, that opinion is brought down. Oh, dear, sure. We're not that stringent, but we should try to clean the should clean the whole house. Okay, so we spoke about the cleaning of the house, not allowed to have it, etc. Keep in mind also the notion that we then went through the house where to clean, what to clean. You don't have to do anything that's uh, extreme cleaning, to scrub your walls or your ceiling. Only where Hamed, Fadim hold that only where Hamed is usually found. Playrooms. Attics if you use it, not attics if you don't use it, uh, computer rooms, living rooms, wherever you might find it, drawers, you want to clean those rooms really well, vacuum, etc. We then spoke about, again about the kitchen, which is the most intense place where your hamez mostly is that, the dining room, of course. Absolutely. So the issue over here again would be your kitchen, which is the most serious place. We spoke about your countertops, spoke about your tables, spoke about either cover it or use the boiling water method, either one is fine. I spoke about, now we're up to this now actually, the oven of course should be burnt out, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever usually, the principle is whatever, however it absorbs, it deabsorbs. However it absorbs, deabsorbs. You want to put your, <clears throat> any of your utensils that go directly on the fire, such as a roaster, without a water medium, that should be also kosher, which is called libun. There are three different types really of kosherans. Actually, more, but three are main ones. One is Hag Allah, two is Libun Kal, three is Libun Hamur. Libun uh, Hag Allah means anything that you cooked on with water medium, you're, you're kosher. Whatever it absorbs, it's going to deabsorb. Right? We talk the molecules and things like that. So, the, you want to do the um, pots and pans, handles, of course, tops of the pots, and dishwasher is this, yeah, soap. So, whatever was absorbed is all absorbed with the medium of soap, which is the which is tam pagum, which makes it into a very a bad tasting, therefore non-edible, therefore non-food, therefore not tracing up to begin with. However, when you're cooking in a regular pot, you're absorbing, you know, the whatever it may be. So you want to deabsorb it. So how do you deabsorb it? You in a regular pot, you get a bigger pot, put your small pots in, clean thoroughly. So use it 24 hours. Not, why not 24 hours? Because whatever's going to come out anyway, anyway is really going to be not real hamets. I mean, for example, let's say you happen to cooked hametz food in a pot that you didn't kosher and it was not used in 24 hours. Okay. How about if you cooked Pesach food, let's say, in a pot that was clean thoroughly, 
It's clean. It was your normal pot you took out of your pantry. And it was not used in 24 hours. Right? I made my rice in that pot without koshering the pot. And I didn't kosher it. I didn't hug lion. Right. So now, could I eat that rice on Passover? The answer is, whatever it's a clean pot. And whatever Hamed's molecules, the spaghetti that you put in 24 or 25 or two days before, well, it was clean, so there's a soap issue, but also not, after 24 hours, it's nothing. It's Tam Pagum. It's a very light. You can eat it. Yeah, but one is. Right, so, so again, right, we should try to kosher our pots, but if you happen to put it up without having koshered it, whatever came into that rice that you made for the holiday festival, whatever you made in it, it's, it's not real, it's not real Hamed. It's, it's, it's nothing. No. We only do that. We only rely on it post facto. If you happen to have done it, you called me up. We don't. Right. We do. We do want. We, we, we do. Wait, wait, one at a time. But also, I think that the key point over here is making it easy stuff by buying a new set of pots. You don't have to kosher anything, really. Oh, oh, wait. Say it again loud. Rina, I want to say this again. I said the easiest way of doing this is buying a new set of pots. There's no need nowadays to kosher. There's no need to kosher now. We all we all could afford, thank God. It just it's right. Much easier. So that's keep that in mind. There's no need. Quiet, please, ladies. I don't care about your peanut butter. Thank you. Please. I think it's very important to get this straight. Make it easy for yourself. Buy it. If you have it 50, 60, 70 years, give it to your kids and grandkids. I don't care. It's fine. Get another set of silverware and pots. In the olden days, 40 years ago, we koshered and we dipped and we did this and everything else like that. It's so easier easy. to get one box, bring it up, bring it down, bring it up, bring it down. It's the simplest thing in the world and you're all such young women that you could all have a lot of use out of this. So do it that way. That's very, very important. What, that's what I, whatever. Buy something else. Something that's eight days. Okay, next issue. We keep in mind that issues, again, that pots that were ever absorbed. Next, not through the medium of water, which is koshered by Hag Allah. We all know that. We want to now kosher in a more intense fashion. Let's say your frying pans, which sometimes are directly on the fire without the medium of oil or water, correct? So that you want to kosher in the oven itself, meaning it needs a more intense form. The oven itself needs a more intense form of koshering. So you put it, while you're cleaning your oven, you can put your roaster in there, you can put your frying pan in there, no problem whatsoever. So all that's pretty clear, right? That was just a thought. I, so I end up with different ideas and I don't want to confuse you. And you and I get confused so I don't want to confuse you. Uh, the, sometimes the frying pan, you may tell me, cannot go into the oven because it'll melt the handle. Get a new frying pan. How much are you? How much are you checking for? 498, 598? Okay, fine with me. I want to taste one of these days of steak and you're a super great, wonderful pot. Yeah. Then, then we'll see. Yes, they all say. I don't know about that one. So, okay, let's we'll 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 do the test. We'll, we'll do the test. <laughs> I don't eat meat any longer, but okay. Okay, wait. So wait. Yeah, sorry. Put the oven. One of my ovens is in the oven. That's very easy. Very easy. Right. So it's clean, thoroughly easy off. All the great, all the baked on gram you want to get off, easy off. Okay. 
put it on for about 40, 45 minutes. What do you usually cook with? And whatever temperature, however it absorbs, it deabsorbs. Oh, okay. So whatever that number is. Now, yeah, then that then it's cleaned out, etc. Remember your burners also. You want to do your burners. Yeah, it's, I mean, the burners, the metal plates, 20, 25 minutes. And that really, whatever Hamed fell on them, all that is... But you don't eat it, that's correct. No, you're technically you're right. It's always being, technically you're absolutely right. Technically you're absolutely right. You don't know that because it's being continuously burned out. So it's not really a problem. But we, de- we generally do, in fact, coach them as a stringent thing. You're talking about the metal plate between the burners. It's interesting. That really is a problem because um, that absorbs. It. Yeah, I would put. Well, I, I would just cover. We just cover it with foil or an insert, whatever. Because that area is very hard to do. So I would put. I just put the. On the other hand, let's say you have a glass corningware oven that never absorbs because corning that because it's glass. So remember again, that glass doesn't absorb. So there's no problem. And it doesn't absorb, it's not a problem, you just have to clean it thoroughly. So you have cutting boards or you have you know, whatever else, glass is not absorbed, it's non-porous, so that's not an issue. Um, now remember also, for the ovens you talk about, talk about your, uh, your burners, your sink, burn it out, to clean it thoroughly and burn it out. Clean it thoroughly and burn it out, because the same way, how it's going to absorb and deabsorb. Also keep in mind the um, uh, KitchenAid, whatever else it is, you really have to clean those very thoroughly. They're very hard to clean really properly. KitchenAid, I would recommend not using it. If you have to use it, to clean it really thoroughly and, and do have, however, whatever you make it. Actually, you don't, you don't even heat in it. It's all cold stuff. Just it could be cleaned thoroughly. That's why you have to use it. You shouldn't use it only because it's very difficult to clean. It's, yeah, it's very hard to clean, only from that point of view. Get a new one, maybe. Because so really, it's hard to clean. But if one can clean it thoroughly, what does he say? I think he says, "Mixes in here." Mixer is in there. Kitchen aid. Yes, it must be kosher. If hot foods were poured into it, then all parts. But extreme care must be. Ta- Shh, ladies, please. Right, but extreme care must be taken to clean it always and thoroughly, especially above the bowl. That's where the flour goes into. It's mounting is necessary for cleaning. It should be done. So it's a very hard thing to clean properly. So it's difficult to do. Okay, please. Okay, hold on. Good. Number one, clean thoroughly two twenty-four hours. Now your pots—that's two of your pots that you're going to put it into. So at the end of the day, it doesn't make a difference because whatever you're going to take your pots have been used in twenty-four hours, correct? So whatever's going to come out of them is going to be nullified anyway. It's not a real case. It does not matter what pot. Well, yeah, well, well, within 24 hours? Yeah, so it's over here. Here's how you kosher stuff. Take the, take the pot to be kosher and clean the thoroughly. If you want to be, whatever your pot, let's say, or whatever you use, your handle, you want to make sure you clean properly, all that, wherever there could be any hamet, right? Boil one second pot with the largest of that. Now, here's the question. And once the water boils, immerse the first pot so it's fully covered by the water. Not that the handle must be completely immersed. That we know, handle as well. Yes, it does. One second. I think rinse the kosher pot in cold water. We'll rinse it in cold water. Remember that cold water. Be a few seconds. One second. Let's it over here. Most covers, of course, covers should also be should also be uh, immersed, right? Hands. 
some pots have ears that cannot be reached for thorough cleaning. What you do, pour bleach or pour soap over it so there's no longer uh, a taste to it. Good. If it's too much, okay. Here is for a second. Um, all that we did. Yes, it is. Silverware. Here. Rinse the silverware with cold water immediately. One second. Can two more pieces put together? Yes, set them separately. Now, here. May meat, silver will be kosher in a dairy pot and vice versa. Right? That's similar to your question. Yes, but remember that both silverware and the pot must not have been used 24 hours. Is that clear? Is that clear? I don't even have one set, but okay. Yeah. Okay. You got one set? Okay, good. Now, let's say it's going 24 but you're going to put it in one by one, or at least so all the, each one should be totally immersed in the water. But they can't touch each other? You don't want them touching each other. No, they can, but just drop them in separately. Oh, okay. so at one so point, they should... Got full water and then. Right, then it doesn't make a difference. No, the rock is a whole different story. But is, is that clear? 24, is it, Bobby, is the is 24 hour story clear? If the spoon and the pot is 24 hours, then nothing's going to be negative. Is that clear? Let's start with the stone. Yeah, I'm sorry. Wait, let's go step by step. She has new pocket. So what? And the question is, what what has she been doing? So what are we talking about? Okay, let's say she. Okay, so you talk about an oven, you talk about pots, you talk about pans. Okay, so you just want to kosher. It's the simplest thing in the world to kosher. Right. You let it burn. Let the oven burn out for forty minutes, whatever. Yes. Tell them, no, you just call sure. In fact, do it with them because it would be a great lesson for them. Oh. Okay, right. Okay. This is a, yeah, we'll pray for no traffic. That's a good idea. No rain, no traffic, no snow. Yes. No, no yeah, that's, yeah, generally that's a good principle, right. But your spoons, your pots, so then when you put it in, whatever comes out of it, three seconds. You just put it in, it comes out. Then you put in cold water, which they all do, right. If you didn't do it, it's okay too, but you should put in cold air food. Is that all clear? Electric hot plate. What did you make on it? All regular. It's a big pot, right? Oh, right. Okay, great. So now I would. Yeah, that's not black, but it's, it's something that's not used. Uh, clean thoroughly. Baked on. I clean it. I would pour some kind of bleach on it, some kind of uh, soap on it. So then it's not going to be any. Yeah, clean thoroughly. You're not going to have all covered. Well, maybe you can't cover it for it because I could. Would it work? But then it, then it still cooks on it? It's still... Oh. Sorry? I have the same one? Okay. <laughs> okay, I have the same one. Thank you, Michelle, for the information. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I thought if we get to put the foil doesn't let heat go through. Okay, good. <laughs> I used to in Boston, no longer. Okay, rule up to date on this issue. Yes, yeah, please. Listen, ladies, listen, please listen to each other. Repeat what I say, it's okay. Yes, but listen. You're talking about boiling hot water, correct? So there's a problem because your, your, burn, is all, your burn is always burning out the comments. You tell it. What stoves have you worried about? There's no, you're, not putting, you're not putting anything on. You're putting a pot of hot water on a burner. Correct? Clean it thoroughly, 24 hours, and you're putting hot water on your burner. 
No, not necessarily. No, people are, cook, people are cooking for the last two weeks. People are the last two weeks. No, because your burners are always your burners are always cleansing themselves with a fire that's on them. They're burning out whatever's there. Your burners. Shit, another issue you're saying. Don't talk about you. Not since we get to suggest. Yes. Do what? You, how careful you are. Let's go. Let's go to the sink now. Sink. The sink is the last thing you're going to clean thoroughly, kosher it, and of course you pour boiling water all over the sink. And around your drain boards, you want to clean it with soap. Your drain boards, clean that with soap very well. Put something on it so that anything that's there is nullified. It's not food any longer. And pour, that's the last thing you're probably going to do is your sink. And you're going to pour boiling water all over it. Yeah. From who? Ashkenazim don't have to do that? I've always heard Ashkenazim do that. Ashkenazim, I heard do that. They change the word every every four hours or something. I always heard Ashkenazim do do that. Ashkenazim don't. Uh, and then she. Okay, there's no real reason to do it because it's not porous. So if Emily has psak halacha, that you don't do that, I'll tell you not do it. I don't care that she's been doing it. The question is, is the posek halacha is an interesting issue. Emily's posek says Rabbi Abadi, so she, he says you have to do Ashkenazim. Don't have to do it, right? The question is. He's a great forsake, but if he's not your mother-in-law's forsake, then she may not want to follow it. I understand that she doesn't follow it. She's okay. If I'm okay. Then you should be okay with it. Then I am too. Because <laughs> okay. again, if that's psakala, Emily got from Ayabadi, then it's fine. Yeah. Because really, essentially, the law is it's non-porous. They changed the water three times. Change the water. So the absorb, the absorb. <laughs> Not a problem. Not a problem. The glass is glass. Okay, let's go on. Let's go on, ladies. Let's go up. Because okay, so all that's pretty clear. Hopefully, you have some broad idea as to how to kosher everything. Remember the principles. Anything absorbed through heat, you want to deabsorb through heat, hot, through water. I think you have a question on your you put it in your oven. Baking trays. Baking trays get directly on the heat. So you really have to put them in the oven. Some of you tell me that you can't really do it. You really can't put a baking tray for 45 minutes in the oven. You can't get off the um, all of the old cookie doughs and all that stuff. So just get new baking trays. No big deal. Either way. So that, that certainly would solve the problem very easily. Okay? Very, and Amazing Savings has a big sale on that, so go get Amazing Savings. They're very good. Okay? Is that pretty clear? So the baking trays are problematic. You're inside your ovens. When you self-clean the oven, the grill, the uh, metal trays in the oven, it all gets clean with the boiling with the boiling of the oven that you're going to do. It's better to wash them. Yes, something maybe take on to try to, but mainly if you want to get rid of the mamash, whatever is actually there, you also want to burn out for the taste. That that's there. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Now next step. Yes. Or you can just cover them with plastic chemicals. No problem. Right? Do you okay on that? The easy way is just put a table It's easier if you want to do the work. Either way. Or cap yeah. Is this the normal version of the chicken? 
depends what is it. Yeah, those have different. Different. I wouldn't be adamant. I think it's not right to be adamant about it. Whatever spirit. You can't say no. You're talking about a forsake of world fashion. Now, A1 issues Eskadim Svaradim. Now, if you're telling me that he said over here, say a dishwasher, what would you Yeah, I Okay, so so we would just run it through. It has soap and an absorbing property. He wants to say what? Change the rag. What does he want to say to do? I said that. So then you have to decide who your forsake is. You really can't say. You should follow him, but Rabbi Batty's world-class posek. If he said it's yes, and it's yes, and then you, you have to try to defend your position. If he says yes, he's a world-class posek. Like Einstein said something about physics. If you disagree with Einstein's physical theories, whatever it may be, you have to prove your point, not his point. He, we know that he's right. You may have a special minhag, <clears throat> you may have a special shita, opinion. He may be following the Bible to Rabbi. Okay, that's his prerogative, but I don't know that you have to, I don't know that you have to follow the Bible Rabbi, because he follows the Bible I don't know what it tells the Sakis. Rabbi Batty is a world-class postdoc that, when he says yes, it's yes. You take it implicitly, but if, he, but if he's not your postdoc, it's a different story. So that you should follow your postdoc. But you can't say no to it. You could say, I follow differently, so that's a yes, and I follow, uh, but I follow a, another postdoc, whatever it may be. You know, again, if you're not Lubavitch, it is possibly Lubavitch to you. I think that's absurd. You know, because you have to, if you're not Lubavitch, you're all about and fine. You must follow Lubavitch. However, I don't, whoever it is, I'm extreme that as an example. You know, I don't follow um, Lubavitch. I'm not, I don't care what they have to say about these issues. You, and I don't follow Shkenazic post scheme either, so it's not my issue either. So you follow the Spotic post scheme that you have it. Right, but if I want you should follow. No. If he's your posse, then you would follow it, right? Okay, all that basically is the koshering process, which is fairly intense, fairly difficult. I spent a couple of weeks doing it, cleaning every single room thoroughly, doing the Hamas on Tuesday night, and making sure the kitchen, which is on last, of course, is boiling water, the utensils, do your sink last, all of that is what you want to do. Um, Wednesday morning, you can do Wednesday morning till about nine o'clock. Yeah. We have, um, there, again, Sadim Ashkazim differ. Um, yeah, usually it's the fourth hour from dawn in Shaot Maniyot. The fourth hour from dawn is around 9.30. But we're still researching it. They have a different opinion. Don't know. Don't know. You have the first, first opinion is about, first opinion is about what you have to eat Hamas at that hour and you want to get rid of all your Hamas by one hour more from at 10.35. Well, it's going to be batel. You're going to batel. It's whatever it is, it's dirt. It's batel. So it's whatever is batel. You, you nullified. That's interesting. But, it's, but again, once you batel, it's batel. I mean, it's, it's nullified. It's gone. And then you're going to do the next day. The, the next day you're going to do the the ur hamet. You're going to burn some hamet. We get a nice metal. Very simply, you get a metal garbage can. It's very easy to do. You get a metal garbage can. You put some of the kids come from around the block. It's very cute. They dump it and we light it and you put the cover on it and it burns very nicely, very well, very easily. Simple procedure. It takes 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. But I mean, then you're not going to use Then you're. Yeah, yeah, of course you could. Yeah. yeah. Sorry? You could use that. I mean, you're burning your hamet. Not a problem at all. 
Well, I like my Baba Chin idea for him. It's a very nice idea. Okay, right. Okay, next situation. Let's spend a little bit of time, a few minutes. No, I'm not going to use that actually. See what's going to. I would imagine so. Change the deck, I would imagine. Yes, that would be. <laughs> well, but that's not eating it. The issue is not eating it. The issue is having hamet. No, would a dog eat it though? Let's say you have a cookie crumbs. Would a dog eat it? Probably. Her dog eats anything. Next story. Is it a kosher pet food? But you're own no, you are owning a mess. Wait a second, hold on, quiet please. Quiet question. Quiet please, quiet please, quiet please. You cannot own Hamet, period. You cannot get any benefit from Hamet. If you give it to your dog and it happens to be actual Hamet, you're owning it and you're giving it to your dog and getting benefit from it. So that would Clear? Wait a second. I don't know yet. Right. So number one, is that clear? Now, the, what? That's Mordechai's problem, not mine, actually. Number one issue. Let's keep that straight. I didn't want it in the beginning, so it's not my issue. And we may have to loan the guinea pig to Mordechai. You know. Number one. So, so yeah, I want to deal with that. Number two. Number two is that the guinea pig does eat carrots, so the left is around carrots, so that's not a problem. Number three, what do we do in terms of, you said, you had a question? No, 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 hold on. If you have a housekeeper, Judy also copy. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's good to know. If you have a, hello, this is an important point to clarify. Lynn's point is very important. If one has a housekeeper, she cannot eat your hamet on the holiday. It's your hamet. If it's her hamet, it's her hamet. Okay, now, let, listen a second. The dog cannot own your hamet. Most dogs don't have the ability <laughs> of... <laughs> so the dog would essentially be eating your hamet, right? That's the problem. You cannot own hamet. So if one has a dog, then one... Hello, hello, hello. If one has a dog, then you have to either give it non-hamet's food or your own food. Or you may have to, some, some of the dog is a very sensitive eater, so it has to, it has to eat this Hamed's food. So this list might be very good, because it may have dog food that's not Hamed's, good to know. But besides that, then you, some people put their dog in a kennel for a week, hotel, for a week. Yes, yes. Otherwise, what are you going to do? If there's no dog food, it's kosher Passover, and your dog has to eat dog food, can't eat human food, and it's a problem, whatever it may be. So that, that's how. Or fish food is a, fish is a problem often. I'm sorry. It's no, it's inedible. If a dog won't eat it, not if you won't eat it. The the standard which we try to emphasize is that whatever a dog would eat, it becomes a problem for us. If a dog won't eat it, then it's not a problem. So if a toothpaste, you have to have kosher the toothpaste or other items. But anything a dog might eat is actually edible. And they would like had kelef, a dog would eat it, then we we are, cannot own it. Yeah, okay. Tell me, tell me, tell me. No, you don't well, wait wait. Well you don't sell to her. Well, I wouldn't recommend selling hamets to a house because 
They don't really understand the whole process. They don't know how to do it. So I would, let's say you sold your chametz per to me, through me, to the goy, right? Connect, therefore, you don't own the chametz, right? Because so now, if you're going to feed that chametz to your dog, you have to ask, it's really something, you have to ask the non-Jew, it's not your chametz any longer. So that has to be, that's another issue. It's the equivalent of, um, and also you don't want to really have it on your, on your premises, with, you have access to it. So it becomes a little more complicated than that. Some people will have, let's say, in a really tight situation, you have your non-Jew bringing his own chametz and feeding your dog, or giving him your dog for the week is an easier solution. To that. Fish sometimes is a problem because you're right, fish food does have chametz in it. So what? Okay, no, fine, I agree. Right. So good. Hope they enjoyed it. Good. So what? Sorry? Okay. Let's go one more step. We only have five more minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, who is here? The next step, what you really want to try to focus on, and I think this is as important as it is to clean homes, as important as cleaning homes and doing kitchens properly and ovens and vessels and utensils and sinks and countertops and tabletops and everything else like that. As important as all that is, and hopefully it's somewhat clear to be done properly. Next step is we want to make sure that our seders are run properly and we want to do what I call having a successful seder. The question that we're going to raise now for a little bit is how does one run a successful seder, right? So the first question you have to really ask is what are the goals of the seder? What do you want to accomplish with it, number one? And number two, keep in mind <clears throat> that your goals, A, may not be everybody else's goals who come, and B, you really have to define your goals by virtue of who's coming to some degree. Right? Not clear? Michelle, not clear? Okay, let's see where I'm going. Maybe I'm driving in the blind right now. I'm not really sure about that, right? No, this is well, this is well worked out. This is tried and true. So now, you want to know who's coming. So you have to have a good sense of who's coming, what their goals are, and what your goals are. And somehow you're going to have to try to be the master pedagogue in order to be able to meet both goals. Every teacher teaches has 25 kids in a class. And every one of those kids really has different goals, as you do. You as a teacher want to accomplish X. They all have their individual issues that they want to elucidate, whatever it may be. Uh, for example, kids love speaking about Christianity. Kids love speaking about free will and determinism. Kids love speaking about punishments and how God runs the world. Now, that is... And important, all these are important issues. But I'm not going to spend eight months a year, which the kids will do. What about this? What about this? But you give them ten minutes each class, or once or twice a week, discuss these are their personal agenda issues, and you have to discuss it with them. There's no doubt that that's true. On the other hand, you know that you're supposed to follow a curriculum because they have to graduate with a certain body of knowledge. So you have to be careful about that. So therefore. You as the master teacher are going to be able to have everybody leave that classroom at the end of the day having had their agenda somewhat dealt with, not completely, not fully, but at least they'll have the sense that he dealt with my issue and he's going to come back to it down the road. So number one is to know that they should feel that they've accomplished part of what their agenda is, and you as a teacher want to know that you've done what your agenda is also, to some degree. It's sort of like you negotiate through the classroom. You can't do all their agenda, but a bit of it you should do, because otherwise that kid is not going to <clears throat> ever absorb what you have to say if you didn't hear what he has to say. It's part of good pedagogy. So if you have somebody who is alienated, 
not involved, not concerned. She wants to eat the roast beef and the uh, potatoes that, that Ashkenazim have, as opposed to the rice that we have. At that end of that day, how, my next question to the teacher is, how do I engage that person's attention? Now, every teacher has this question. How do, you, how do I teach a group of kids about a prophet who lived 2,700 years ago, who has really nothing to say, say to them? They're not interested. They're not interested in the ideas, in the literary artistry of the book. They don't care about any of that. So how does one engage their attention? That's pedagogy. Everybody that said this, everyone teaching in a classroom has those people there. They all come. What do you want to do? Now, sometimes, it's very interesting because sometimes people have what they say this, they create, they create their sedarim. They create it by inviting only those people who are going to make sure they're going to contribute a great experience to their children. To their children. Now, why is this so important to us? <clears throat> very important point. You'll notice in Haggadah that the Baal Haggadah, the Haggadah gives you a prototype of four different children. Wise, evil, Tom, Tom, simple person. Shunur De Elishu doesn't even have to ask a question. You have those four prototypes that you're stated also. And what hangs in the balance? What hangs in the balance over here? Dasha, this evil kid, let's use that word in quotes, hangs in the balance is you're going to lose your kid. If you don't do it right, you're going to lose that kid, which means he'll intermarry or she'll intermarry. That's you have down the road. You have to create an experience from the time the kid is four or five or six or ten. That And this is what that tells you. Because you as a parent slash educator failed in communicating the message and experience to that child, you've lost that kid. There's nothing more important than that. How do you save that kid? Answer these questions in an, an age-appropriate fashion. Even the language you use, how you express yourself, may determine whether you've hit the right note or not hit the right note. I tell these kids, because I want them to appreciate the extreme artistic brilliance of the prophetic literature. How they use rhetorical devices, literary strategies that any good author would use or any good speaker would use. In your lives, you've heard great speakers and terrible speakers. Some guys, you can't wait till the 10 minutes in his speech, he's like 25 or 40 minutes. Other speakers are so good, but by risk, it was so good, they speak for 40 minutes, you say, wow, that was incredibly wonderful. Knowing how to put it together and impacting because of that. Right? So I tell these kids the following, I said, let's say your sister or your brother is about to intermarry. You're the only one close enough to speak to that person. People come to this question all the time and tell them, what am I? I don't even know the person. You know the person. You're the brother, sister, whatever you are. You're the parent, you're the, you're the uh, sibling. What tools do you have to convince this person not to intermarry? If you fail, you've lost that kid. Right? The kid's going to intermarry. So how do you succeed? Now, you don't have a gun to the head. That's not going to work any longer. That may have worked 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago in Europe. It's not going to work any longer. You have the spoken word. You have your literary, your rhetorical devices. You have your common emotional experiences. You have the same grandparents that you're going to destroy by virtue of what you're doing. You have to know what concepts to use and how to express them effectively. Every teacher is either effective or non-effective. I told my kids, if you at the end of learning are more with me, are you the same person? Meaning, you don't care about social injustice, which I'm more speaks about. You don't care about uh, judicial corruption. You don't care about living a luxurious life. People are starving out there, which is what Omar Amor says. If I, you walk out of here and you don't, at the end, appreciate, understand these issues, seeing a homeless person, giving them a dollar or whatever it may be, or having a $200,000 wedding when somebody's starving to death someplace, 
And you missed the point of the book, and I failed as a teacher. I tell them that, and I failed. So I didn't know how to impact upon you to get that message across. Right? My classroom has to be an experience to them. That I have them for nine out for nine months, for about four hours, five hours a week. Now, if I cannot convince them that these are important messages, whatever my pedagogic technique is, and I use all kinds of pedagogic techniques. I read these things all the time. It's not something I walk in, read my notes, and I go home. That's not what it's about, especially not in high school. I'm not only concerned with communicating information. I'm concerned about a transforming experience. They should realize that they will never forget this classroom. If I'm that good, I could do that. Right. Kids will come back five years later and say, I was that good. Some kids don't. Some kids do. There are certain teachers that are legendary. Who I learned from, Rabbi Haramadi. You mentioned the name Haramadi. Everybody's lies light up. I had him 30 years ago. People had him five years ago. Thank you. Was that nice of me? Five. I said five. So people have these teachers which somehow have the charisma, the mode, the language. And imagine, he's a only Hebrew speaker. So he was so good that his Hebrew impacted upon, we had him 30 or 35 years ago. Astounding. And I could tell you what he taught, what he said. <clears throat> Amazing. These are legendary educators. So it all hangs in the balance. Either... It, it, they should not right they should not be because teacher is like any other art the more you practice it the better you'll be to have the information I mean I try to teach teachers how to teach but if they know your material inside outside upwards and downwards if they know how to analogize whatever techniques that one has as a teacher it's true these kids I have a, a middle level so they don't really care about whatever I'm talking about they have no clue they don't care about it at all my job is to get them from where they are at to where I want them to get, and I do it through contemporary analogies. I will give them examples that say, a rabbi comes to the shul on Yom Kippur and starts screaming and yelling at our synagogue because we have mixed dancing at wedding, because we go to mixed bathing and beaches, and I give them the whole list. I ask them, what do you think the rabbis are talking about? And they give me a whole. They give me the list of what they think is inappropriate to the community: gambling, whatever else we do, drugs, whatever else we do. So now, okay, good. So this rabbi is going to come and lambast you for all these issues. What are you going to answer? Before they know it. They are mimicking the message of Amos. They get to know it. If I find, for example, that Amos will use a common experience that they've had, the people have had. Now, Amos wants the same problem I have. He's got to get his people to an ethical perception, sensitivity, right? So he will use a consciousness that he and they share, such as the exodus from Egypt, right? So they share that experience. A good speaker is going to tune into what is audience is about. So what does he do? He uses a common experience. Right? Good. Common experience. So now, what do I do for them? I will tell them a whole story, how people in our community, Syrian rabbis, will try to get the people on their side by saying what? We want you to be stringent. You know why? Because that's how we did it in Halab, in Syria. Exactly. So the rabbis committee will do exactly the same sentimental journey to get the people on their side to agree with what they're doing. They may be right, they may be wrong. They may not care whether they're right or wrong. They've got their audience by virtue of using a common experience. Exactly what Amos did. Using key phrases, catchwords, which triggers a whole set of emotions in that listener that he's going to want to do what you want him to do. The Navi and the teacher have the same common goal of transformation, transforming characters. Now on Pesach, I just say that you have the same exact job. You're not a parent. 
you're not, I mean, you're not a parent, you're a parent slash teacher, you're not a cook, you're not a servant. Your job there is to engage your children, your guests, by knowing where they're at. Now again, let's say that person who is not concerned, can't even read Hebrew. Well, if you know your Haggadah, you want to engage, you want to deal with his issue to some degree. You can't let the whole set that revolve around that one person's issue. But if he walks away feeling that you spent 15 minutes on my issue, then he feels engaged. Before I got here today, I called my sister and said, Robin, you have an opportunity, you have an I think you a task. Me a task, what can I do? So your family still has 15 questions that I can ask. We're going to have questions, we're going to put them in a bowl, they have the questions. This way, first of all, they bought into my system already. They bought in because they're putting in the questions. So I'm engaging them ab initio from the very beginning, number one. And she says, but they, they ask questions, they don't know the answers. Fine. I want them to know that. I want them to be engaged. What more does a kid... 10, 15, 17, want more than, here's the question, he knows the answer. He's the center of attention. He feels good about himself. Which is why the Haggadah, for example, has asked, asking the kids to ask the questions, the four questions of Manashtana. Because you get up and you feel good about yourself. The end of the day, if the, if the child or student feels good about themselves, they answered the questions, they spoke up, they were engaged, they walk away enhanced, it may have been to one degree or another, a transforming experience. So you also said there should be a transformation of character. It's what you aim for. But realizing who your people are. Let's say you have somebody who never read a Hebrew book. There's no issue over here. So now, you know this person, let's say, lived in Argentina. 50 years ago, let's say. So now you're going to plant a question. Because the Haggadah talks about anti-Semitism. Right? So you ask the table, does anybody have any experiences? Oh, you lived under Peron. The 50s was the dictator of Argentina. Tell me about it. All of a sudden, that person is what? Engage, because that person will now tell me about their experiences under Peron who hated the Jews. Right? How do you do that? You're talking about, say, halach ma'anya. We invite people to come in, right? So you take, you raise the general question: Did anybody over here have an experience with a homeless person? You never did. Let me tell you my experience with a homeless person, and then you tell a story. Stories in general are very captivating for most any age. We go to movies, we go to plays, we read books because we like stories. Sometimes we go to inappropriate movies and books and we read X-rated stuff. But that just is sad because the great literature has such a story to tell. It's astounding, great literature. Especially Tanakh, but nobody appreciates it because it's a different language. But if you have a good story to tell, you have a person's attention. One second. Yes, yeah. No, meals tend to, no, meals tend to not work for, for these kinds of things. I disagree. I think because then the meals the, the tends to lose the dialogue. It should carry so much. But here you have a paragraph. If you know your Haggadah, here you have a paragraph talking about, let's say, the chosen nation concept. Right? One paragraph, let's say, right? Chosen nation, Amnifchat. Right? Now, you may say, a question such as, um, such as, uh, don't go. I have to quote you, have to quote you in a second. Okay. So hold on. You may, in that say, talk about what has been, what has led to the greatest degree of anti-Semitism in history. The chosen nation custom has, because, right, yeah. Or you might say something like the following. We're reading about this, this paragraph. So your, your text is clear. So you say, do you ever think of this? How odd of God to choose the Jews. It's not so odd the Jews chose God. So I like that too. 
Okay. How odd. That's my point. That's exactly my point. I transformed her. I tell the kids at school, if I don't, if you don't walk out of this at least twice, twice you're saying, wow. If, if I tell the kids at school, if you don't walk out twice, you're saying, wow, to something that I said, I failed. That was a wow. How odd of God to choose the Jews. It's not so odd. The Jews chose God. So who's now? I give out tickets on the on the Saturday. I give out tickets. So the kids get tickets and then they come after the holiday. Oh, God, yes, the rhyme. They will never forget that phrase. I read it 30 years ago. You just That's the power of the spoken word. Wait, wait, wait. No, it's Maria. So then I get out tickets. So I say, what does it mean? You have to think about it. What does that mean? You have to think about it. I repeat it three times. Okay, good. Now we got what it means. Now the next one, we have who said it. Extra truth is who said it. Yes. Oh, a second. You want all the infor- you want all the information on, on hand over here? Okay, who said it? Maurice Samuel said it in 1930. He was one a great literary Jewish author. Why did he say it? Because Arnold J. Toynbee, who was one of the greatest historians of the 20th century, wrote a ten-volume work of world history, 1920s, 1930s said the Jews are a fossil people because Christianity was on the upswing. Anybody in the right mind converted to Christianity because that was the religion of the intellect. We're a fossil. We had a role to play as the dinosaurs did and then we died out. And that was the view, the common intellectual view of the Jew on the continent in Europe at that point in time. Free World War II, 1930s. Well, that's why it was easy to get rid of the Jews. So all of a sudden you have a whole discussion over here. You have a whole discussion over here. Hello. You have a whole discussion over here of this chosen nation concept. But you have to do your homework. You have to know the answer to these questions. Your homework is very important. You, the more work you, you do here, the more you'll get out of it. Another question. Let me just go out to Judy. I asked. I was at her Seder, which was a wonderful experience about four or five years ago. I raised the question because we're talking about Lavan. We're talking about Paroch. Who's the most evil man in history? And went around the table. Thank you. Now, each, kid, each person had a different opinion. My big problem was that my that that her mother-in-law had invited a Palestinian and a Protestant. So I was afraid one of my kids was going to say was going to say Yasser Arafat. I was petrified. He's on. I'm kicking. Don't kick Mordechai was about six years old at the time, and. And Mordechai comes, and he comes from a home where we talk about these issues, you know, Yasser Arafat. So I was really concerned about that. You remember that? That was an interesting point. What do you do when you do like diverse and you bring on these people It's an all night, but you may not you may not hear this man who may have this, this man who may have very strong feelings of the Palestinian issue may not want to hear that Yasser Arafat for murdering children, for lying through his teeth, for being the mo- one of the most uh, in the uh, in the grass. He may not want to hear that. You say you don't understand. Now you have to be concerned because and that could lead to a very interesting, very good discussion that you may lose. Uh, I think he, I think I shoved him a piece of uh, a maxi or something. 
You're eating the actual water. That's it. So you didn't say that. You didn't say that. Sorry. Yeah, please. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. No, just read better in English. That's what they understand. We we do both. We do. Yeah, again, it's very difficult to, to to get everybody involved. But if you have pre-planned questions, or you play the game. I had a friend who played Jeopardy with them. He had a big board. They chose the questions. He had categories, right? They had categories. They chose the question for points. At the end, and then you know, and then it cost you extra twenty dollars. You know, whatever. Make and you buy little tchotchkes, little things. And the kids and everybody gets very excited about it. Something like that. this year he's playing. Uh, he played How to Be a Millionaire, something like that. All these kinds of things, the prices, whatever. We use anything we can to get them involved, excited, engaged, because you want this to be a transforming experience. Yeah, right. No. Yeah, we don't. We don't. Is that in in biblical literature? In biblical literature. We don't have any, with one exception in Melachim, we have a few exceptions in Melachim. The Paro is always known as the Paro because that was his title of respect. Because he wasn't mentioned in the Bible. He was not mentioned. His name is Paro, which, which, is, which is important and interesting because presumably the Torah wants you to be aware he was more than an individual. He was an institution. When you're only named... No, there was more than one, because one died, one died. But, but they want you to know that he represented Egypt. And because of Egypt, it was much more difficult of servitude because he represented an institution that's ongoing. He is a person, but he really represented symbolically. He is... He's real. But he's larger than a person, right? Yes, he's the institution of presidency. So, so I said, that gives him more status. In this case, it's more than a president. Right, correct. He's a god, a god, one of the gods, right. Right. Well, if you go back to the Egyptian uh, sources, probably not. They 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 had both. They probably called themselves the president, and various legal documents, and various documents of impact. When they want to impact as to who they were, they would use paro. In other other in other items, not necessarily in the legal documents, not necessarily in the diamonds uh, di- on the uh, documents of impact. Depends upon what they were writing, how much they wanted to. Uh, Impact. Have a good day. Take care. Uh, sure. Of course. Of course. No problem. Simply analyze. Historians have done this work repeatedly. It's a very, very long discussion, which you can do at another time. There are two possible dates for the Exodus based on certain contradictory evidence. One is around 1440 and one is around 1250 based on all things that were going on, based on the Hebrew people exodus, based on how they conquered Yericho, for example, one, but there's, there's contradictory evidence, that's why it's very hard to get to the truth. Some people would say that Ramses II, they built the Tomorah Amses, 
So that may be Ramses II. Some say that he was a very powerful monarch, so he probably wasn't he. But his son, Miramta, Miramta, she won? Is that back for her? I did. Yeah. Miramta was a very weak, was a very weak, uh, Paro. So it might have been under him in 12, 14, 50. But some say that you have a Pasuk in, in, uh, Shemuel, I'm sorry, a Pasuk in, uh, Melachim al-Ferechet, which says that the exit took place 480 years before the building of Ben Amikdash. So, Bill Bush was 960. So, 960 plus 480 is around the 15th or 1440 for the communists, something like that, right? But then we have other problems with that dating. So, there's problems any which way. So, historians have gone back and analyzed and gave whichever date makes the most sense. One of the problems of the 1250 dating is that Jericho, according to their dating, was already destroyed as a city. So, had the Jews destroyed, it was already destroyed as a city. So, that's one problem with it. The other thing you could you could answer that easily and simply say it was destroyed, but it may have been rebuilt as a very yes, as a very uh, not the Jericho, but they built another little Jericho. Somebody came along, built it on the same ruins, and they destroyed it again, which we may not have. You know, so we may we may not have information about that. There's a lot of ways of raising questions and answering all those questions. So historians have argued long and and intensely trying to solve that question, but they have basic parameters, and uh, there are many good biblical histories that would answer that question. John Bright is the best. It's called History of Israel by John Bright. It's one of the one of the best, which is, gives you the whole history of Israel. It's really a very, very good John Bright. Yeah. He's a very, very good historian. He does a very good job. And he gives you very clearly, very simply, or shakorly, it's a lovely, lovely book to read. To go through. Good? Okay. Now, so now, the idea over here is that we do want to have a very successful Seder. We'll just end with one more point. And therefore, we have to be aware of your goals of the Seder, number one. Number two, you want to be aware of who's there and what their goals are. You want to pre-position your questions, your comments, your quotes. And there are many other quotes that you can use provocative examples. One interesting quote, which doesn't refer to the Seder maybe, maybe he does. The essence of man is to be a question, and the essence of the question is to remain unanswered. Right? So again, what does it mean? We want to tie that to a paragraph. So you might, you know, you might uh, tie to Shinoya Delish all. We have one of the four sons. What does it mean not to be able to ask a question? Why can you not ask a question? So this is one answer why you can't ask a question, because you yourself are a question. In other words, don't always think of that child who cannot or does not ask a question because he's quote-unquote uninterested or he's a simple kid. No. He may be so intensely involved in all issues of life, he doesn't have even a focus on asking one question. He has 25 questions. Why is he not asking a question? What's he all about? Right? So you might bring that quote to say, well, what is this? We're now going to read about a child who doesn't ask a question. Why doesn't he ask a question? And would you say, in fact, he doesn't answer the question because the estimates to be a question. That quote is a great quote. Eli Wiesel has said that. So it's a great quote which can, in fact, stimulate a lot of discussion, which is what you want to do. You want to engage. Now, you want to also be a good pedagogue and make sure that you cover your material. You want to cover the Haggadah. You're not going to spend, you know, as I sometimes do, you know, 40 minutes on one issue. And people really get upset at you. They start throwing the Haroset at you. So you want to be sure that you don't do that either. A good teacher has a good sense, has a good sense of movement, time, knowing when to, moving on, you know, and then and challenging individuals, knowing what a, a student's strength is. If a student's strength is anti-Semitism, 
or student strength is the chosen nation, you want to play upon that because he's engaged, he cares, and then he walks away transformed. Okay? Uh, there's a lot of other points here to discuss, but we'll end it right now. And thank you very much for coming. The essence of man is to be a question, and the essence of the question is to remain unanswered. I don't know the quote, but it is. Uh, Any quotes? Uh, how does it go again? Something about um, that we'll never find God in this life, but that we have to keep on asking. Something like, a, um, I remember it was one of my Jesus quote quotes. Mm-hmm. One of the statements that you usually say that God is where only where you let him in. That's a uh, one of the rabbis that. <laughs> if it's a, age appropriate, not at four years old, I won. Because of the age. If they're hayav, yeah, then it's hayav that you drink four. I drink grape juice, so I can't do the other. So, but I, but uh, if they're hayav to drink, yeah. Yeah. Three ounces. If they can, yeah. I mean, say Hayab, yeah. Or most of that they could drink. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. And use grape juice. Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. What happens when you go to Hillel and you learn from the Spartan and the Ashkenazi teach, it's like, he likes the Spartan team better. And we don't really, you know. Do I have to care? No. Yes. If she's engaged, yes. How old is she? And your other one, who's your other? I have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. 10, 8, and 7. Yeah, I would, unless the other kids object to it, I would... No, no. They look good. That's very good. I mean, I want, I want them all engaged. And the 4-year-old that's going to run around, I should really want to make sure he's sitting at... Well, you have to engage him. Your job as a as a teacher parent, how do you engage a four year old? So they have some. That's good. There's a song about idols. My kids came home with an idol. Something about an idol. An idol doesn't do this. It's very funny. They're very funny about idols. Yeah. What's this for? <laughs> no, I don't do, don't do this. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Take it back. No, we don't do that. Give me a pet. Okay, good. good. Oh, good. I was asked what you used to feed the dragon. That's what I want to know. The coach of Ben's home. Yes, please. You want to sign it? You have permission? By the way, I have some extra. I have. You can sign it. To give you permission, yes. I want to make sure that you. Um, I have extra Haggadot. So if you, anybody will take this and use it, please take it home. Rabbi Riskin Haggadot has a very good commentary on it. Yes, please. That's good. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Everybody. Everybody has a perspective. Ask them to make up questions, make them part of the story. If, if, you know, tell them that. You know, give them this. Say, your job is to, you know, and if you, if you give up five good questions, you don't have to do the dishes. Or whatever, whatever, you know, you make it worth their while. Thank you for coming.